Thank you. All right. Well, good morning. Um, I love that Jesse just said this. I was thinking it as Glenn was talking. There have been a, a number of us men who have started to just decide to call Glenn coach um, because that's just the, um, he is the embodiment of a coach, somebody who's always coming alongside you, helping you to get better, helping you to grow, helping you to see what needs to be done. Um, and so we love Glenn. We are thankful for him. Our church is better uh, for him. One of the things I want to call out that he said in his, his uh, gospel highlight here is that he just called it a ministry of men. And I think that's important language. We don't consider this a ministry to men. Uh, we do. I mean, that's happening there. We're ministering to one another, but the primary focus is that the, the men in our church would start to say, hey, this is our church, and this is our city, and that we would start to operate in those capacities. And that's our, our hope from that ministry, that it would be a, a ministry of men to men and to the church and to the city and to all who have need. So... If you have your Bibles, would you open to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Matthew 5, 17 to 20, and then we're going to stand and read together, but I want to call attention to two things that we do on Sunday morning um, that may be lost on us at times. The first is that we stand and read together. There's a reason for our standing and reading together. And the reason is directly related to me. And here's what I mean by that. One of the most important things for me to remember as a pastor and as a preacher of the word is that I am underneath the word of God. I submit to it. And so as you all stand and read the words and I partake in the act of listening, I'm partaking in an act of hearing the words of God read over me and reminding myself that I am responsible to those words and those words alone, to God's words. And so as you read the text this morning, there's something happening there. It's a reminder for me that these are God's words that I am called to be responsible to. And then there's a second thing that happens in our services that I wanna make sure I understand why we're doing it and what we're doing. After we've read the word, you will hear me say, this is the word of the Lord. And the response is, that is not simply um, religious tradition. What it is is it is me reminding us what we have before us is the word of God. The God of the universe has seen fit to condescend in communication to his people. And we need to remember that, that this is his word. And then the second thing we say is thanks be to God. And there's a reason we say that, because we're thankful that God would see fit to not leave us wandering in the dark but to reveal himself to us through his word and through his son. And so this morning, as, as we do those things, those aren't simply religious things we do because that's what you do at church. They have deep meaning and value and purpose. And we try to create a service that 
has those elements in everything we do, meaning and value and purpose, reminding us of things, communicating things to us. And so this morning, as you are at Matthew 5, 17 to 20, would you please stand and read the word of the Lord this morning? Matthew 5, 17 to 20, 1, 2, 3, read. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father in heaven, you have graciously gifted us with your word. And it is our desire as a people to submit to that word knowing that it is good for us to do so. We desire to not just be hearers of your word this morning, but to be doers. So help us, Lord, as we come to this text to rightly understand it and to rightly respond to it. It's in your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. My, uh, my son and I read books before bed every night. And there's a series of books that we've grown to love and it's, it's a book about a town called Rubbish Town. And in Rubbish Town, it's a town filled with various little monsters and creatures and cute little doctors that are made of toast. I don't, it doesn't make any sense. Um, but it's just great. It's very lighthearted. It, it, it's one of those uh, book series that, that we enjoy to read simply because it is enjoyable to read. And there's one book in the series called The Impossible Door. In The Impossible Door, our main character, Patrick, uh, he has, he's, he's a little monster. I don't know, it looks like a robot monster, but he's great. Uh, we love Patrick. Um, Patrick, he, he is walking home from the grocery store and he's got his bag filled with waffles. And he is excited to get inside of his house to cook the waffles and to eat the waffles. It's something he's been looking forward to all day. And he gets to his door and he can't seem to open the front door, hence the name The Impossible Door. He can't figure it out. He's pushing and he's pushing and he's pushing and the door just will not budge. And so he goes to his neighbor, his neighbor is Barry the Big Brown Bear and by the name you would assume that he's big and he's strong and so Barry the Big Brown Bear comes to uh, Patrick's front door and he also tries pushing as hard as he possibly can to open the door to the point where he actually injures himself attempting to push this door open. The door just won't budge. And even Barry can't get the door open. His other friend Artie, who's a pretend magician, tries to open the door with magic. Naturally, that doesn't work. 
Sooner or later, the entirety of Rubbish Town is outside of this door trying to figure out how to open it, and no one can. Everyone is pushing and pushing and pushing as hard as they can, and the door will not budge. And suddenly, Patrick remembers something. He remembers that he doesn't push his door to open it. He pulls it, and the door opens. You see, Patrick couldn't get inside because he wasn't opening the door the right way. It did not matter how much he tried to push the door open. He wasn't getting inside because he wasn't doing it right. In order to get in, Patrick had to get it right. Friends, I'm here to tell you something this morning. In order to get in, you have to get it right. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor. You can do that louder. Neighbor. If you want to get in, you have to get it right. We have arrived at a new section of the Sermon on the Mount this week. It's a new section. It'll open up pretty much the rest of the sermon for us. In this passage, Jesus is introducing the body of his sermon. Now, so far, he's introduced us to the culture of the kingdom and the pathway to life in the kingdom. Those are the first 16 verses, and now he's going to be talking about the implications of the kingdom from verses 17 onwards, the implication of what happens when the kingdom of God gets into you. What does that look like in your external relationships? These verses... In verses 17 to 20, they're going to operate as a thesis statement for the entire sermon. In these four verses, Jesus is telling us, this is what I'm trying to say. This is what I'm trying to say. The theme of the Sermon on the Mount is the theme of greater righteousness. In verses 21 through 48 of this chapter, he's going to be talking about an internal righteousness. In verses 1 through 18 of chapter 6, he's going to be talking about the danger of merely external righteousness. Through the rest of chapter 6, he'll talk about the value of greater righteousness. And then he'll finish the sermon in the last chapter, chapter 7, by offering us two ways to live. He's contrasting the end of greater righteousness with the end of a lesser version of righteousness. In this passage, Jesus wants to lead us in a right understanding of who he is and a right understanding of righteousness. As I was reading in preparation this last week, I came across this statement. It says, certainly these four verses are some of the most disputed and difficult verses in all of the Bible, which is exactly what you want to read when you're preparing a sermon on this passage. So I want to do my best today uh, to engage with this passage in a way that is faithful to the text, 
that is meaningful to our understanding of Jesus' teaching as a whole and helpful to us as we desire to grow in our likeness of Christ. So here's my my simple outline today. This is what I'm after. If you want to get in, you've got to get it right. You have to get the right understanding of Jesus and you have to get the right understanding of righteousness. If you want to get in, you've got to get it right. You have to get the right understanding of Jesus. Verse 17 to 18 say this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until all, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, so, you know, those are like the smallest punctuation marks in Greek language. Like what he's saying is not even the smallest little marks of my word will pass away until all has been accomplished. At this point in Jesus' life, people have been following him. They're listening to his teaching and they are carefully noting that his life has closely paralleled the life of a man in the Old Testament by the name of Moses. Moses was the leader of God's people when they were brought out of slavery in Egypt and and they're they're noticing a parallel between Jesus' life and Moses' life. Someone following him might be asking the question, did you come to do away with the Old Testament, with the law and the prophets? Like, are you telling us that the Old Testament has no value anymore? Is that what you're trying to say to us? Like, are you bringing something entirely different in? In the first century, there was, uh, or early second century, there was a man by the name of Marcion, and he starts a false religion because he can't reconcile the God of the Old Testament with the Jesus in the New Testament. So he pretty much gets rid of the Old Testament. He says we don't need it anymore. And then he picks and chooses passages in the New Testament that kind of further his viewpoint. One of the passages he leaves out in the New Testament is this passage right here. Sects of believers in his kind of, or sects of uh, his followers would actually change this verse to say, I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. Like how people are looking at Jesus and they're asking him, how do we reconcile you and what you're saying with our holy scriptures in the Old Testament? And Jesus is absolute in his response. I did not come to do away with the Old Testament. I did not come to abolish the Old Testament. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to fulfill it. This phrase that he uses, the law or the prophets, it's a shorthand way of referring to all of the Old Testament. And this theme of fulfillment is so prominent in the book of Matthew so far. If you have your Bible, would you just turn a couple pages before to Matthew chapter 1, 22. I want you to see this. Matthew 1, 22, it says this. It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by a prophet. Then go to Matthew 2.15. Matthew 2.15 says, And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. 
out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew 2, 23, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would, he would be called a Nazarene. Matthew three fifteen. but Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Matthew 4, 13 through 16. This is right as Jesus begins his ministry. He leaves Nazareth and he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. This idea of fulfillment is all throughout the book of Matthew. This idea that Jesus has not come to do away with the Old Testament. He's not come to abolish the Old Testament. He has come to fulfill the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that has been written in the Old Testament. That's the way that Jesus reads his Bible. Jesus reads the Old Testament and this is what he does. In Luke chapter four, he shows up to the temple, he opens the scroll of Isaiah, he reads it, he says, this has been fulfilled in your midst. He drops the scroll and he walks out of there. He reads the Old Testament with him as the central point, the fulfillment of all of it, which means something for you and I, brother and sister. If we are reading the Old Testament and Jesus isn't the point, we're reading the Old Testament wrongly. Jesus in Luke chapter 24, he, he goes on the road to Emmaus and he's walking with his disciples and they're, they're, they're broken, they're, they're heartbroken because Jesus said that he was rise from the dead but instead he had just died. They preach a truncated gospel, it's an incomplete gospel. They say Jesus came, he was this amazing man and then he didn't raise from the dead and Jesus is like, no, <laughs> oh slow of heart, foolish. And then he opens their mind to understand the scriptures, which would have been the Old Testament. And then it says, and he interpreted to them all the things in the law and the prophets and the Psalms concerning himself. He's pointing them to the Old Testament saying, look, this has been the message all along that I would come, that I would die, that I would rise again, that I would ascend to the right hand of the Father and that I would return. It's been the message the whole time. God has not changed. In, or in Luke, or 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, there's this phrase that Paul uses. He's talking with Timothy about the work of the pastor. The work of the pastor is to preach the word. And the reason why the pastor is supposed to preach the word is because that all scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable for teaching, for, rebu for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, here's something fascinating about that. Timothy didn't have the New Testament. He had the Old Testament. Paul didn't have the New Testament. He had the Old Testament, which means when he says all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for salvation, what is he talking about? 
the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophesies Christ. It proclaims Christ, and Christ comes as the full fulfillment of all of it. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, so let's do a little bit of track work here. In Genesis, we have this passage in 3.15 where there is the curse, it is given, but there's a promise given. The promise is that you will have an offspring who will crush the head of the serpent. He will save his people. Jesus is the offspring who will crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is the greater Noah who is blameless and through one righteous man rescues humanity from God's judgment. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham who comes to be a blessing to the nations. Jesus fulfills the Exodus. In the Exodus, God's people were brought out of bondage and slavery to Egypt and led into the wilderness where they're taught how to live as a people under God's wise rule. That event is pointing forward to Jesus who delivers his people from the bondage of slavery to sin and leads them out, teaching them how to live as God's people under God's wise rule. Jesus fulfills the law. He lives the perfect human life without failure, without sin, perfectly embodying not just the content of God's law, but the intent of God's law. He understands God's law as a pathway to life and a pathway to the love of God and the love of others. And every single thought that comes from his mind is perfect in purity. His motives always match his action. And he operates as a picture of God's will in the life of a person. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh and in him sin was condemned in the flesh on the cross of Christ, fulfilling the law that sin must be punished. Jesus fulfills the concept of the Old Testament temple. The temple in the Old Testament was built as a place where God's presence dwells. It's the meeting place of heaven and earth, and it was pointing to the day when God would walk with his people again. Jesus is fully God, and he takes on humanity to bring God's presence back to God's people. He's a perfect revelation of God and his presence, and now instead of going to a physical place to meet with God, we go to a person, Christ, who brings heaven to earth through his presence. Jesus fulfills the idea of the priesthood. The priests were people who mediated sacrifices between God and man, or between man and God. They would offer sacrifices, they would offer repeatedly the same sacrifices, and these same sacrifices, the author of Hebrews says, could never take away sins. Which here's what this means. In the Old Testament, when they were bringing their goat or their lamb or whatever they had to bring to give as a sacrifice, that was not the sacrifice. It was a picture, a shadow pointing forward to Christ who once for all The Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, who was offering himself as a single sacrifice for sins. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding on behalf of his people, which was the job of the priest to intercede between God and man. (laughs) Jesus fulfills the idea of kingdom. The kingdom in the Old Testament, God sets up a kingdom and it's a people called out to reflect his glory in every area of life. He sets a king over the people who are supposed to lead as God would lead and those kings constantly fail to uphold the law of God. Constantly, even the best of them fail. (coughs) 
Jesus is the faithful king who leads us in the exact way God would lead us because he is the image of the invisible God who brings about God's true and better kingdom. Now you're like, okay, Austin, that's great. All of that I understand, but I got you with Proverbs. How's that about Jesus? What about Ecclesiastes? How is that about Christ? Well, we're dealing with something in those texts called wisdom literature. In the Old Testament, there's wisdom given for life. And the offer on display in wisdom literature is that there's one pathway to life and there's one pathway to destruction. That's the offer on display in wisdom literature, which, just so you know, that's the offer in the Sermon on the Mount. This is wisdom literature. Jesus is the wisdom of God, perfectly embodied. He shows us the way to life and he warns us of the pathway to destruction. He teaches us how to live in God's world with God's wisdom and in the cross, he is the wisdom of God perfectly revealed which is foolishness to the ways of the world. Jesus also fulfills the prophets. In the Old Testament, the prophets would show up on the scene to help God's people see that they have strayed from him. They would call the people of God to repent and believe in God and Jesus is the greatest of all prophets calling us to repent of our sins, helping us to see where we have gone astray, aiding us in our belief, and taking on the judgment that we deserve. In every way, he fulfills the prophet's role of calling God's people back to God. Jesus did not come to abolish the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it and to detract from the Old Testament is to detract from Christ. I want you to notice something about this text. None of it will pass away. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. If we remove or we detract from the call of God in the Old Testament, we remove and detract from Christ who fulfills it. Jesus did not come to abolish the Old Testament. He came to make sense of it. He came to fulfill it. This is why the teaching afterwards is to teach without relaxation one of all of these commands. Why? Because if we relax on some of them, we miss out on some of what Christ has done for us. If we relax on aspects of the law of God, what we're saying is that we didn't need a savior there. That's just not that big of a deal. We didn't need Christ to fulfill that. We just kind of need to ignore it. And inevitably what we do is we become like Marcion who has removed the Old Testament from his understanding of the Christian faith and we become like Patrick who keeps pushing on a door that actually needs to be pulled. If you wanna get in, you have to have a right understanding of Jesus. And if you wanna get in, you have to have a right understanding of righteousness. Verse 20, it's this striking verse and it feels incredibly problematic. Let me read it to us. For I tell you, 
unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I want, I want to notice a few things in this text. First, Jesus talks about an exceeding righteousness, but he contrasts it with something. That of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the scribes and the Pharisees would have been the super-duper religious holy people, uh, is the way that the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it. Um, they were the ones who read the Old Testament and said, you know what? We're going to go one step above this. We're going to take this even further. They were the people um, put on display for the people of God as this is the model of holiness. So the people in Jesus' day and age would have said, if you would have asked them, like, what does the righteousness of God look like? They probably would have been like, well, my buddy, um, you know, Hector, he's a, that, that wouldn't have been his name, but he's a Pharisee. Um, you should probably just follow him. Or, you know, Bill, he's, he's a scribe. He's pretty righteous. You should kind of look to him. That's how they would have defined the term. They would, they would have looked at these individuals who walked in it. And, and Jesus shows up on the scene and he says something incredible. Unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees, they didn't get along, but it was not because these scribes and Pharisees were overt sinners. Like, you wouldn't look at their lives and say, ah, yeah, they're kind of a train wreck, they're kind of a mess. But there was a problem with their form of righteousness. There was a problem with their form of righteousness. And the problem was, it was all external. It was all external. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 27. I, I think it's actually a passage of scripture that helps make sense for us of what we're trying to do today. Jesus says in Matthew 23, 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So here's what we can't say. Because what we could possibly take away from this is, ah, I just kind of got to do more righteous acts than the Pharisees. But Jesus seems to tell us in Matthew 23 that if that's our pathway of living, let me just do more righteous acts than them. We're simply the same thing, uh, a whitewashed tomb. Uh, here's what this looks like. Um, housing market's crazy in El Paso right now. And there's a lot of people doing a lot of work to the front of their house. Like they're painting the outside of it. They're doing nice landscaping. And then you open the door to go in the house and you're like, who died in here? <laughs> and why has this house not been touched since the 50s? 
they've done the work on the outside, but inside it's not livable. The words that Jesus used are filled with dead bones and uncleanness, filth. So here's what we can't say. We can't say that Jesus wants us to do more righteous acts than the Pharisees. So this isn't this complex rating system. Like they've hit 800 righteous acts, so you gotta hit 900. That's not what this text is advocating for. It's not advocating for a numerical number that's greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. That's not right at all. They appear beautiful, but the inside is, is dead. When Jesus says exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, here's what he's saying is, they aren't getting into the kingdom. Did you notice that? Unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What does that imply? That their righteousness has not been enough. They will never enter the kingdom of heaven unless their righteousness exceeds where they're at right now. They aren't getting into the kingdom. Looking at them, following their way of life leads to destruction and missing out on the kingdom of God. Jesus is not advocating for making the outside more beautiful. He's talking about something completely different. The Pharisees are like Patrick. They keep pushing on a door and they're trying to bring more force to the door to push and to push and to push, and unless they get it right, and unless you and I get it right, we'll never get in. We'll never get in. Their righteousness is insufficient because it's not the right type of righteousness. We need righteousness that actually works. We need something that is exceedingly greater in its fundamental properties. Here's what Jesus is trying to argue for in this text. And it's backed by where he goes from this text. If your righteousness is simply external acts without internal transformation, hypocrisy a righteousness that keeps pounding on the door, pushing, never getting in. The righteousness Christ is after is far superior to the righteousness of the Pharisees because it's a righteousness that actually works. If you wanna get in, you have to get it right. How do we get it right? Well, I'm here today to teach you a theological term. I know, I'm a pastor, what the heck? The theological term I have to teach you is called double imputation. Say that with me, double imputation. Here's what that means. It's beautiful, I hope you walk away with this and you grab hold of it and you take it with you because this is what that means. It means that my sin has been credited to Christ. Every bit of it, every ounce of it credited to Christ and he takes that to the cross and to the grave 
Now, if it's simply that, then now I just got to zero, right? So like if I was in debt, thousands of dollars, and somebody was like, hey, give me, credit that debt to my account. Well, now I'm at zero dollars, but I still am just going to start racking up more debt, right? That's probably what would happen. But here is what Jesus is saying. Not only is your sin credited to Christ. This is the doctrine, double imputation. Not only is your sin credited to Christ, but his righteousness is credited to you. It's a righteousness that far exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. Because it's not a righteousness of my own external making. It's a righteousness that comes deep into the internal wells of my heart, my soul, and my being. And then it flows outward. And it's a righteousness that, my friends, you cannot earn on your own. It's a righteousness that can only be given by Christ. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ, I'm now in a position to begin to walk righteously, to not simply pay attention to the outside, but to look towards the heart. What's the motivation of my heart? Christ has fulfilled the law, and he has invited me to walk in his righteousness. I'm not simply focused on external righteousness anymore, but I'm after a complete, whole-person way of being in the world, perfectly integrated between the external righteousness and the internal motives because that type of righteousness has been bought and paid for and credited to my account in the cross of Christ. In the coming weeks, Jesus is going to talk about a few things. He's going to talk about anger. He's going to talk about lust. On Mother's Day, he's decided to talk about divorce. And just the way the preaching calendar worked. He's going to talk about our speech. He's going to talk about how we respond when we've been wronged. All of that is going to be moving past external responses. I'm, I mean, the, the way that Jesus talks about it, if you've hated your brother, you've murdered him. So even though you haven't physically done it, externally you haven't done it, which is a good thing, that's righteousness, internally you have. And that's what I'm after. Even if you haven't cheated on your spouse, if you looked at another person with a desire to, that's internal. That's an internal thing that's happening. Has lust been something that's internal? That's what Jesus wants to deal with. <coughs> All of that moves past external response and it dives directly to the heart of the matter. And the only way we can face this is if we have greater righteousness which has been provided for us in Christ. A righteousness that has been credited to us that allows us to go into these deep spaces knowing that transformation is possible because we've been clothed in something wholly different than the external righteousness of the scribes and of the Pharisees. If you want to get in, you have to get it right. Pushing on the door as much as we can will only lead to destruction. But if we remember that Christ has opened the door fully for us, then we have a way forward and a pathway to life. 
So we come to him. We bring to him our need for greater righteousness and he delights to fulfill all that we need because he has come to fulfill it all. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. In these four verses that in many ways encompass the entire teaching of all of Scripture, there's much left to be said. And so we ask that if there are any in here who need to hear something that was not said through my words this morning, that they would look to your word and they would hear. God, we see this concept of the kingdom of heaven and and we see this idea of fulfillment and we we just recognize that you have rescued us from the domain of darkness. You have transferred us to the kingdom of your son and, and we desire, we desire to see you, to see what we've, you have done and to live into the truth of that righteousness. Thank you that you have credited our sin to your account and that you have credited your righteousness to ours. You have gifted us with all that we need. And so Lord, we look to you, the author, the finisher of our faith, in whom we can take great confidence. It's in your name we pray.